you'd be turning to Isaiah chapter 6 in your Bibles this morning, that will get us off to a good start together. Isaiah chapter 6. Let me ask you this morning, what hope is there for a people and a nation who are prosperous and materially wealthy, a people blessed to live in a land of natural abundance, a people founded with God's law at its core, and a people with the very blessing of God upon them, yet they are a people who have tragically lost their way. What is the prescription to cure what is so very wrong with such a people? What's it going to take to get them to turn from their rebellious and sinful ways? It is into just such a situation that the prophet Isaiah speaks to us this morning as we look at Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. Let's look at the very first phrase of Isaiah 6.1. In the year that King Uzziah died... Isaiah sets the scene for chapter 6 by telling us that the king who had been over Israel, over Judah, for 52 years has just died. It's 740 B.C. And the previous 52 years have been years of great prosperity, great wealth, great peace, From all outward indications, it looks like it's been a great rule of the king. But spiritually, things are a total disaster. Turn back one chapter with me to Isaiah chapter 5. Let's see, because Isaiah sets the scene for Isaiah 6 by talking to us about God's vineyard in Isaiah 5. Vineyard is a a very common theme throughout the Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. Israel was an agricultural society. They relied on wine very much for for drink, and and, uh, they used it quite liberally. And here we have a vineyard analogy. Isaiah starts out in verse 1 and continues in verse 2, and he gives us an introduction to the Lord's vineyard. Isaiah 5.1. Let me sing for my beloved. Isaiah says, let me sing for my Lord. He calls the Lord his beloved here. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out of wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Literally, it yielded stink fruit. Yes, I said stink fruit. Okay. He was doing everything he could to create this vineyard that produced wonderful fruit, but instead, it produced fruit you can't eat. It fruited bad grapes, disgusting grapes. Verse 3, the Lord now speaks directly to Israel. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? God says, I have done everything that could possibly have done for your spiritual well-being and growth, Israel. And you have rejected me. You have despised me. Well, what did God do for Israel? I think Paul says it really well in Romans chapter 9. Paul in Romans 9 is talking about all the advantages that the Israelites had. But yet they would not believe in Christ by and large. The Apostle Paul in Romans 9 verse 4. They are Israelites. And to to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, 
the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the promised Messiah. God had given them so many advantages. What more was there to do for my vineyard, in verse 4, God says, than I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Why did it yield stink fruit? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. God had given them every advantage in the promised land, in the land of milk and honey, a land overflowing with milk and honey, a virtual paradise He had prepared for them. What will God do? Verse 6, In judgment, I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. The briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Now in verse 7, Isaiah is going to interpret this for us. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. And his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry, a ruin, a riot. This is Israel's spiritual condition in the year King Uzziah dies. The judgment is coming. It's not here yet, but it's coming shortly. So let's go back to chapter 6. Chapter 6 of Isaiah is on the surface about the personal call of Isaiah to ministry. Now, personal stories in the Bible are not told for their own sake. They're they're not told so we can know a little more about Isaiah. But rather, they are told so so that God can illustrate an either greater point or a greater truth for us. And He will do that here in Isaiah 6. Let's take a look and see what we can learn. Back to Isaiah 6, 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. We are transported by vision into the very throne room of God. Isaiah is brought there, and what does he see in the year King Uzziah dies? He sees the Lord sitting upon a throne. He is high and lifted up. The train of His robe fills the heavenly temple. What's the contrast Isaiah is drawing for us here? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. King Uzziah is dead, but God is not. God is alive and well. God is watching over His people. God is active. He is doing things. Let's continue with verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Seraphim are angelic creatures. They are sinless creatures or they could not be in the presence of God himself. And here he describes them for us. And verse 3. One called to another and said... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. What's your impression? What is the impression that Isaiah, and obviously we, are supposed to get from the words of these angelic creatures. Well, it's ultimate holiness, isn't it? Repetition is a great device in the Bible. 
holy, holy, holy. There is so much holiness here that one holy won't do it. Not even two. You must have holy, holy, holy. Perfection. Moral purity of the highest degree. It's like the English language almost fails to get to the point. Almost any language fails to convey the true full meaning of this holiness. Interestingly, as I, as I studied this, there's only one other place in the whole Bible where this threefold expression of holy, holy, holy occurs. It's in the book of Revelation. It's Revelation 4, verse 8. Revelation 4, the Apostle John, again, is transported by vision into the throne room of God Himself. And there the angels say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And in Revelation 4 they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now I felt a little convicted when I found that out. When I figured out there's only two places where this holy, holy, holy is about is, is there. Well, I was convicted because, you know, we sing a song, don't we? Holy, holy, holy. Do I really sing it with the gusto that's appropriate for the way these angels in God's throne room sing holy, holy, holy? Now you get a bonus this service. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest to Mike Grimes that we sing that hymn next Sunday and see how we do. Holy, holy, holy. Do we really begin to even comprehend the holiness of God and how great and perfect that He is? A.W. Tozer wrote about holiness. We cannot grasp the true meaning of God's holiness by thinking of someone or something that we think is very pure and then raising that concept to the highest degree. No, we're not even getting close to what God's holiness is like. We are not even getting close. It is incomprehensible to us to the fullest degree. I liked what one commentator said. He said the the, the fact that the whole earth is full of His glory is simply showing us that glory is like a wrapper around God's holiness. It, it lets us see God's holiness in a certain way. It, it shines through that, that wrapping in a certain way. Because we can see His glory. I mean, I love going to the mountains and seeing the glory of God even in the power and beauty of the mountains. You can see God's glory in a sunset. I see God's glory in an approaching thunderstorm and His power and His might. But here we have Isaiah confronted with the holiness of God. Well, what's his reaction? Isaiah 6, verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, or I am ruined, or I am destroyed. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What is Isaiah's reaction? In comparison to the holiness of God, he is terrified. And what is he terrified of? He's going to die. He's going to be judged for his sin. Woe is me. That's like the, the greatest way you can say, I am so desperate here. God help me. For I am lost. I am destroyed. He is fearful that death is coming his way. Notice also, he not only says that I have unclean lips, he identifies with the people of Israel. The ones we just read about in Isaiah 5. He says, I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips. I am just like them. I am a sinner. 
Isaiah is surely familiar with Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. They both say in their first couple verses, they have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Now, before this point, Isaiah clearly knew he was a sinner. But in the glaring light of God's holiness, his sin is radically exposed. Well, he's in good company in confessing his sin. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, after he'd been an apostle for over 30 years already, he writes this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul says, I'm the foremost of sinners. I am, not I was, I am the foremost of sinners. He knows he's a sinner. Martin Luther said, we are simultaneously sinners and saints. Simultaneously sinners and believers. We have been declared righteous by God through the blood of Christ, but we still have a sin nature. There's still a war going on. Isaiah knows that war is going on. James 4 tells us, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Well, Israel was very proud. They were attempting to be acceptable to God by keeping His law, Paul tells us in Romans. Not by faith. They were not following the example of their father Abraham who believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Genesis 15. So now, what is, what is the Lord's response to Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. <laughs> what do you think he thinks is coming? I mean, I don't know about you, but if I'm ever watching one of these TC shows and they're torturing somebody by putting a cigarette butt on their body someplace, or a smoking cigarette on their body someplace, I kind of, I kind of wince, right? Well, how about a burning coal coming right towards you with an angel behind it? I mean, he's, he's got to be thinking this is the end. This is it. Okay. This is how we're going out. Verse seven. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What's going on here? Notice the source of this burning coal. There's evidently some sort of heavenly altar in the throne room. And in the Old Testament, an altar meant something. An altar was the place where the coals were placed underneath it, the fire was burning, and the animal that was to be killed and sacrificed as a substitute for people's sins was to be placed. That pattern is very familiar in the Old Testament. The sacrifices that would have gone on in the temple day after day and year after year on the brazen altar spoke to the people that blood must be shed for the forgiveness of sins. They knew that message. They knew there was no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And here, that burning coal represents that sacrifice. A sacrifice that in this instance removes guilt and provides an atonement or a covering for sin. That's what the word atonement means. It means covering. Notice who does the cleansing work here. Is it by some effort or some work that Isaiah performs? No. It's totally God. Totally God who takes the initiative to reach out to Isaiah and Cleanse him from his sin. God restores the relationship that Isaiah has with himself. 
God is preparing him to be a prophet. Well, that same pattern fits for us today. God calls us in the New Testament to acknowledge our sin, to repent, or to change our mind about our sin. And then we are called to accept the once-for-all sacrifice for sin that Jesus made for us on the cross. And in so doing, we freely receive the forgiveness of God. Because now, Christ is our substitute. He dies in our place on the cross. He pays the penalty for our sin. Now, up here this morning, unlike many churches, there's no altar. We don't have an altar here. And we shouldn't have an altar here. Because the only reason you need an altar is if you're going to perform a sacrifice. Well, the once-for-all sacrifice has been done. So when you walk into a church and you see an altar, the red flag ought to go up. What's going on here? Do they have sacrifices for sin here? Well, the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 10, tells us we have an altar. As believers in Christ, you know where our altar is? Our altar was outside the walls of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago on the Mount of Calvary where Christ paid the penalty for our sin and was sacrificed for us. That's our altar according to Hebrews 13. We don't have one up here anymore. Because Christ died once for all, for sin, for all time. Well, Isaiah has now been properly prepared. And so the Lord is going to send a message to his sinful, rebellious people through Isaiah. Look at verse 8 of Isaiah 6. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, the Lord said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull, and their eyes heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed." Well, what a ministry Isaiah has to look forward to here, right? What kind of a message is he going to be proclaiming and how is it going to be received? Well, he's going to tell them, he's going to proclaim the word of God and they aren't going to hear it. He's going to show them the word of God and they aren't going to see it. As a matter of fact, they're going to do this so long they are going to reject god's message so long that in judgment god is going to make them so they can't hear and so they can't see but interestingly john chapter 12 the gospel of john chapter 12 quotes these verses Guess what Israel's response was to the message that Jesus brought? The same response that they had towards the message that Isaiah brought. Now this hardening of hearts by God after rejection of the truth over and over by His people is a common thread through Scripture. You first see it with the Pharaoh. If you read the story of the Exodus... And, and you go and you find out that, that Pharaoh is not going to let pe- the people go, Israel, Israel go into the wilderness to worship their God. It says that Pharaoh hardened his heart against Israel. Well, he hardens his heart against Israel and he hardens his heart against Israel. He does this a bunch of times and then there's a change in the way the language is, comes out and it's God hardens Pharaoh's heart. You see, if you continually reject the message, if you continually hear the message of the gospel, of the truth of God, the forgiveness that is available in Him, the free grace 
that he offers you and you continue to reject it, pretty soon something happens. I don't know when it happens. Nobody knows when it happens. But your hardness of heart becomes so great that God in judgment against you hardens your heart. Because there's no other option left. If you reject the one sacrifice, Hebrews chapter 6 talks about this. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift. Okay? Those who have heard the gospel, have listened to it, have enjoyed listening to it, but they never embrace it. They never put their fingerprints on it. They never let that truth come into their heart. Verse 5, And have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. You see, when you constantly hear about the forgiveness, the offer of forgiveness by grace of salvation through God alone, and you reject it. You are crucifying the Son of God over and over in your heart. And God will harden your heart after a time. One of my greatest fears is that some come here on Sunday morning and they hear the Word of God and they like to hear it. Herod was like this. He liked to hear John the Baptist. But he never believed He just liked to listen. So if you come here week after week after week and you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ presented and the truth of the word and yet you never embrace it, you always keep it at arm's distance. It's kind of entertaining, but I don't buy into it all the way. God's judgment will come upon you. When that happens, we don't know. But it's happened here to Israel in Isaiah chapter 6. It happens to Israel in the ministry of Christ on earth. In fact, when John quotes this passage from Isaiah chapter 6, he says that Isaiah said these things. This is a quote. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, Jesus' glory, and spoke of him. So whose glory is Isaiah seeing here in chapter 6? He's seeing the very Son of God, the pre-incarnate Christ in the heavenly throne room. That's what John says. That's what John says. That'll blow your mind. You start thinking about that for very long. Now there is a little glimmer of hope here. We've been dealing with judgment and pretty dark stuff on Israel. But here at the end of verse 10, the last half of verse 10, it's a little tiny glimmer of hope. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And some will, as we're about to see. Some will. And it will happen. It will happen. Let's take a look at verse 11. Isaiah's response to this mission he's been given. Then I said, How long, O Lord? You can imagine. Isaiah's going, How long? Now, We might think that how long is Isaiah asking, how long do I have to preach this message? That's not what he's asking. He's asking, how long, O Lord, will Israel have this unrepentant, hardened heart against you? How long will they do that? Back to verse 11. And he said, the Lord said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away 
and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. The answer to how long is a hard one. It's a hard one to listen to. It's a hard one to think about. God is going to judge His people. Sin will be judged. As a matter of fact, sin must be judged. God is holy after all. He is holy and just, and sin must be judged. And He will judge His people Israel. He will judge His people Israel until the cities lie waste without inhabitation, that houses won't have people in them anymore. The land will be desolate. No crops growing here. The Lord will remove them from the land. The people of Israel during Isaiah's time could never have imagined this. After all, this was the promised land. God had promised this to Abraham. God had brought them through the Exodus. Through Joshua, conquered the promised land. They were living in the land overflowing with milk and honey. But they were faithless, disobedient, rebellious people. They had been so for centuries now. And God is going to judge them. As I read this, it reminded me of Jesus' words over Jerusalem shortly before He's crucified. Matter of fact, Pat preached on this right before he left back in June. Matthew twenty three thirty seven. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. You were not willing. Verse 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now these judgments upon Israel actually happen. They haven't happened yet in Isaiah 6, but they are about to happen. The northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes of the north, were defeated and scattered across the Middle East by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., 18 years after Isaiah 6. The city of Jerusalem and Solomon's temple were desecrated and destroyed. And the people taken into captivity, into exile to Babylon, out of the land in 586 B.C., about 150 years after Isaiah 6. The city of Jerusalem and the second temple, Herod's temple, was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D., about 40 years after Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead. So where is the hope? Where is the salvation? Death and destruction for Israel appears not only on their doorstep, but it is soon to be executed. Isaiah has been warning them. They are not listening. They are not willing. Well, look again at the last verse of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 13. We're especially going to look at the last line. And though a tenth remain in it, that is a remnant, a remnant of the people of Israel remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak. A terebinth is a tree common in the Middle East. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. That's what Israel is like at this point. They're like a dead dying, burned out stump. There's nothing left. It's just a stump. No tree, no green, no nothing. It's dead. But notice what the very last line of verse 13 says. 
the holy seed as its stump. The holy seed can also be translated the holy offspring or the holy descendants is its stump. You see, in that stump, even though it doesn't look like it, there is life. Death has not won. There is still life in that stump, according to Isaiah. Salvation, in fact, is in that stump, as we are about to see. So Isaiah is now picking up the promise of a deliverer, of a Savior, of a Messiah from a holy seed, from a holy offspring or descendant. He goes clear back. to He's picking this up from Genesis 3, from Eve in Genesis 3. There is the promise of an offspring or a seed or a descendant of Eve who will crush the head of Satan. Genesis 12, to Abraham. Through one of Abraham's promised offspring, his promised seed, his promised descendants, all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed. That's a promise of God. That promise is in that stump. And from David, King David, the great king of Israel, from 2 Samuel 7, God promises that one of his offspring, one of his seed, one of his descendants will rule on the throne of David forever. You see, Isaiah is telling us that God will keep his promises by raising this holy seed, this offspring, this descendant out of a seemingly dead people, out of a remnant of Israel. This is Isaiah's message of hope. It's in the stump. Well, who is this one? Isaiah is going to unpack this for us. He's going to peel the onion, so to speak, and and show us who is this holy seed in the stump. He'll he'll start in the very next chapter. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. I'm going to go through a bunch of passages. You're welcome to turn to those if you want or just listen. I'm going to progress my way through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel or God with us. The Gospel of Matthew tells us in chapter 1, this is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ to the Virgin Mary. Two more chapters. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That's the seed in the stump. Two chapters later, Isaiah 11, verse 1. This is a pretty direct statement. This links it pretty solidly. Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? King David's father. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. I have this picture that, that, that is actually on one of the commentaries I use of this stump. And out of this stump, there's this dark or this bright green little sprout of a leaf coming out. 
You see, Isaiah is unfolding this for us. He's going to make it bigger for us. Because at this point in the book of Isaiah, it seems like this seed from the stump is coming to save Israel. It's coming to redeem Israel from their sin. But just eight verses later in Isaiah 11.10, we're told this. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people. A signal for the people. The idea is there is a banner for the people or a flag being raised for the people. Who shall stand as a signal for the people. Of him shall the nations inquire. Really? Not just Israel. But the nations, the people of the whole earth, the Gentiles, will inquire about this one. The root of Jesse will not only attract Israel, but all the nations, all Gentiles, all non-Jews. This is stated explicitly in Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, talking about Messiah here, the servant Messiah. This is one of the servant passages of Isaiah. He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, to bring Israel, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Let's stop there. It is too little a thing. It is too light a thing for this Messiah, this Savior, this servant to restore Israel. No. What is this servant going to do? Read the next line. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Wow. From the seed in the stump. This stump salvation will reach all peoples, all nations through the Messiah. Messiah is just the Hebrew word for Christ in the Greek in the New Testament. So Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's His title. It's Jesus, the Messiah of all Israel. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Well, we're not done. He not only tells us, in Isaiah not only tells us that the whole world is going to be saved through this one, he's going to tell us how. How is God going to, how is he going to pay for people's sins? How is he going to pay for Israel's sin? Oh, we had the pleasure of having Pastor Scott Mullenberg here two weeks ago. He preached Isaiah 53. So let's read a section of that again. Because he tells us about the atonement. It's one of the greatest passages on the atonement in all the Scripture. Isaiah 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So Jesus as a man didn't look like anything special. And go, wow, he's really a handsome guy. No. He's like every other guy. But he is punished so much that he's almost unrecognizable. His face is so marred. His suffering is so great. Isaiah goes on, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The seed from the stump. That's who Isaiah is talking about. Let's bring the analogy of God's vineyard full circle. Let's bring it to the New Testament. What kind of vineyard will come forth from this holy seed? We're going to look at John 15, verses 1 to 5. What is the effect of God's holy seed on His vineyard? Of the Messiah on His vineyard? Listen to the words of Jesus. Spoken to His disciples on the night before He was crucified. I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is God's vineyard now. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. As we abide in Him, as we believe in Him, we grow as part of His vineyard, of God's vineyard. You see, God has revolutionized this vineyard. He has created it anew in Christ. For it is God who brings life. He causes life to come from dead, burned out stumps. And He brings life, spiritual life, from spiritually dead hearts. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. You weren't just a little drowned. You weren't going down for the third time. You were stone cold dead at the bottom of the ocean. And God is going to raise us up through Christ. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Love verse 4. But God. But God. God stepped in. Death is not going to win. Spiritual death is not going to win. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. United to the true vine. Well, how does God bring hope to His people? Through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ the holy seed from the stump. This triumph of Christ, when brought to full climax, will result in King Jesus ruling and reigning in His eternal kingdom in the glory that is the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. Let's jump to the end of Isaiah, to Isaiah 65. Verses 17 to 19. Words that foreshadow the words of Revelation 21. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. 
and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. This is our future as believers in Christ. It's a glorious, wonderful, joyous thing. King Uzziah is dead. But death does not have the last word. There is hope and life and salvation in the Messiah, servant of Israel, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, You are holy, 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 and we are not. We thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, and for the promises to Your people that You have kept through His righteous life and atoning death for us as our substitute. You have taken our sinful dead hearts and given us eternal life through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. As we leave here today, empower us through your Spirit to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and cause us to be ambassadors for Christ to the hopeless in the mission field you have given to us. It is a privilege, Father, to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. I have a final word for you as you go this morning. Now may our Savior's love, our risen Savior's joy, our ascended Savior's power, and our returning Savior's hope rest on your hearts and homes. Amen.